within the context of what James uh, has to say in regards to walking by faith. He reminds us that faith without works cannot be called faith. It's dead, he says, and dead faith is worse than no faith at all. So James' exhortation in his five chapters is really to exhort his readers to make sure that faith is something that is more than a word in their vocabulary, that faith is something that we live out every day. We walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Faith is a word that we use in regards to our relationship with God, but it's not a tangible word. It's not necessarily something that we always see actively at work uh, uh, around us. We simply, we walk in it. And we walk in faith because we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're not saved, if you're not born again, then faith is a word in your vocabulary that simply means you're putting your trust in yourself or in the world or in something or someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The great thing about putting your faith and trust in Christ is He has said that He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never turn aside from us. He'll always be there for us. He may not always do the things that we like or the things that we want Him to do, but He'll be a faithful Savior and Redeemer toward us. In other words, He will do those things for us and through us and in our lives that will bring the optimum for the glory of God. And so as James begins to write his epistle, he is writing to a, a group of people that have been scattered abroad. They're dispersed. They're, they're, they're a, a people who have lost their homes. Uh, they're not in familiar places. So they've been dispersed or scattered out into the world. And yet even with that, leaving the familiarity of what they had always known or they were comfortable with, they were not alone because they had the Lord. So wherever we're at, for Millie and I being up in Seattle, we're never without the Lord. The Lord is there. He's with us. We, we, would, we would pray in the morning and just ask for God uh, to, to direct our day, for the Lord to be with us, for the Lord to protect us knowing that he's faithful to do that. And so James, as he begins this little epistle, just five chapters, James makes an interesting statement here to us in that he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he identifies himself. We know that he was the half-brother of Jesus. Many discount the book of James because he never mentions Jesus' name. But you don't have to mention Jesus' name to know that everything that he's talking about keeps pointing back to Jesus. But how does he identify himself? Well, he says, I'm a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm a man who lives under submission and subjection to God the Father. So my, my loyalty, my, I give honor to my Heavenly Father. I acknowledge that He exists that He is the God of creation, that everything that exists and subsists is because of His creative power. He acknowledges that. 
But he says, not only am I a bondservant of God, but also of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the only mention there, really, of, of, of Jesus in regards to this little epistle. And so what he's saying is this. He said, the Lord Jesus Christ, he attributes deity to him. He's the Lord, Elohim. He has been, he is, and he always will be. And then Jesus Christ, a name that would be familiar to his readers. And he says, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. So they've been dispersed. When you, when you look at that verse one, <clears throat> that term to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad is a reference to what is called the dysphoria. They have been dispersed. And the reason they were dispersed is because they were being persecuted. They were coming under persecution because of their faith. And especially within the Roman realm, the Roman government, what they were doing is they would take many of these, these believers, they would take them captive and they would, they would disperse them and they would put them out in the far reaches or far places away from their homeland. Now, in doing so, they thought that that would minimize or somehow diminish the influence and the impact that they were having on the world. So it was it was a historical process by which dominant or ruling governments, when they had groups that they believed that were subversive to who they were, they would break them up or they would scatter them. They would try to disperse them. And not knowing and understanding that this was all part of God's divine plan. Because what you do, you take a bunch of believers and you scatter them all over the world. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to plant the seed of the word. They're, they're going to share Jesus every place they go. They're going to begin to talk to other people in other places and other cultures and other parts of the world. They're going to be talk to them about God and the love of God and the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And so he says to them, greetings. He says, my brother, and count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Had any various trials this week? Any of you? Any trials? Any tribulation? Any difficulties? Maybe not huge things, but sometimes trials are just enough that they're an irritant to us. And we just think, man, do I have to deal with this right now? But he says... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And what he begins to do here all the way down through into verse 8 is he begins to lay out a scenario for us to understand that trials aren't always a bad thing. When we go through struggles, it's not always a terrible thing. Sometimes it's exactly what is needed in our life for God to get our attention. Now, I can say this without reservation this morning because I think it's consistent with the Word of God. God never desires to do harm to us. God can chastise us. He can even punish us. But it's never for the sake of of destroying us. It's never for the purpose of taking away any sense of, of, of our human dignity. Because God wants us to understand always that He is our God and therefore He is our Creator. He allows us to exist because He loves us and He cares about us. 
And He wants the very best for us that comes through His divine providence. So God is not out to get us. He's not a God up in heaven who's waiting for you to make a mistake so He can pounce on you. That's not our God. So He's a trustworthy God. He's a faithful God. He's a loving God. He's a fair God. He's a God who is capable of directing our lives, setting a path for us that would bring glory and honor to Him, but also to bring joy into our lives. So it's interesting that James would say, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He uses interesting words. Joy, fall, various trials. Not a trial, but various trials. And and you look at the construction of what he's saying. First of all, he says, count it or understand that You can rely upon this to be joyful for you. And that word joy there, what a fascinating word. It is this idea that the joy of the Lord is what? It's my strength. So when I have the joy of the Lord, I'm strong. I have this spiritual strength. And so he says... When you fall into various trials, that word fall is this idea of an unforeseen pit. Something that you're not really looking for. A number of years ago, I was on a missions trip in the Philippines. I'm walking down the highway with a bunch of pastors along the highway. Beautiful, beautiful scenery. There had been a storm the night before. And, and, and it was just clear, and there were clouds on the horizon, and there was a cool breeze. And one of the things that I didn't know was during that storm, it had undermined the highway. And so I was walking along, and the road collapsed underneath of me. And I fell down into a, into a, a pit, into a hole. Scraped up my legs, did injury to my back, twisted my wrist. I mean, I was a mess. But it was a fall. It was an unforeseen fall. It wasn't something that I was counting on. And yet in the midst of that, there would come a point where I was able to count it all joy. Now, when I fell into the pit, I wasn't joyful. I wasn't saying, oh, hallelujah, thank you, God, for 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 me falling into this hole. It's wonderful. I know you're going to bring your divine purpose through this. No, no, no. I was like, what in the world is just happened? And I was in tremendous pain. And they wanted to take me to the hospital, and I refused to do that because I'd been to the hospitals in the Philippines, and, and, and I was rather going to trust on my companions to take care of me. And they did. They did. They laughed at me. They thought it was funny, but... They were having joy, but I wasn't at the moment. But God brought joy out of that because what it did was it altered our schedule, our plan for this conference that we were going to be doing. And little did we know, because of that storm, most of the people that were going to come had been delayed by a couple of days. And so it turned out perfectly that we arrived at the conference the same time that they did. A little bandaged up and walking a little funny, but nonetheless. 
So he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And the word various is important here because not all trials are the same. They don't always look the same. They don't always come from the same direction. They don't always manifest themselves in the same way. So a variety of trials would say this to me. That I need to walk in the joy of the Lord, in the strength of God, and in the Word of God, so that whatever trial comes, whatever variety of trial it's going to be, I'm going to have the capability of being joyful in God, and knowing that God, you somehow, some way, for some purpose, you're going to use this trial in my life. What you end up with is this. You end up with an optimistic view of your circumstances that you live in, rather than being a pessimist all the time and and going to God and saying, oh God, why are you allowing this? Oh God, why are you doing this? I can't believe this is happening to me. No, you begin to be a spiritual optimist and you say, yes, this is difficult or it's hurtful or it's not easy to deal with, but God... You have a purpose in this. And so what it forces me to do is it forces me to begin to turn to God. To begin to look to God. And to begin to seek God. And oftentimes when we go through trials, we're doing just the opposite. We we go to friends, we go to family, we call the pastor. And not that that's wrong, but the first line of understanding and defense is to go where? It's to go to the Lord. Go to Jesus and to seek Him. And He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So here's the key right here. Here's the word that you need to focus in on. Testing of your faith. So many things that we go through in life, whether we realize it or not, it's a test. I mean, David said, try me, O God, to see or to show that I'm, I'm faithful, that I'm, I'm truly yours. In other words, bring it on, God. I, I, I want assurance. I want affirmation that I'm not just a Christian in name only. I want affirmation. I, I want to know and be able to see that even, even during trials, even through difficulties, that, that you're going to manifest yourself. You're going to show yourself to be faithful and true. And he says, the testing of your faith produces patient. Being patient. I'm not a patient person. My wife's here tonight. She would say amen to that. I work at it. I do. I honestly do. I work at it. I catch myself at times and I'm just saying, Lord, I need help with this. And oftentimes I'm forgetting, I think just as you all do, that that testing, that trial that I'm going through is for that very purpose, for God to bring to my mind and remind me that you've got to be patient. You have to wait on me. You have to trust in me. He said, but let patience have its perfect work. Now that makes sense to me. I don't know if it does to you. If I'm patient then I allow the perfect work to manifest itself, right? Just being patient. I'm not a great one for following instructions. Somehow in my mind, I think that whatever it is 
uh, I, I'm of a, an intellectual superiority and I can just figure it out. I don't need instructions. Not long ago, Millie had something. She wanted me to put it together. It was just a, it, it was just like a little, uh, a little shelf thing, a little, it was on wheels and it had little shelves in it. It was really cute and, and, and so I saw the instructions. I discarded them as I oftentimes do and I started putting it together and I got to the very end and I realized I'd put it all together backwards. It was just, everything was the opposite way. So where the front was supposed to be, I had the drawers in backwards. And so I had to disassemble the whole thing. And I, I got it all disassembled. And I'm, I'm sitting there on the garage floor and I'm looking at it. And I see the instructions over there. And I say to myself, yes, John, once again, there they are. There's the instructions. Went over and got them. And the first thing, the number, you know how the instructions and they have a big circle with a number one in it? You know what the number one was? In red letters, please read instructions before assembly. And so that was a test of, of my patience. And it's interesting. He says that it, it wants to have a perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God uses trials and tribulations. He says, count it all joy. He said, because there's going to be something produced out of this. There's going to be something good that's going to come from this. You're going to learn some things from this. You're going to grow from this. You're going to be more perfected. Now, the word perfect isn't used in the sense that we would use it, but it's this idea of being complete. God's saying, I'm going to use these things to complete you. What do I want my life to look like? Do I want it to look like what I want it to look like? Or do I want my life as a believer to best replicate the life of Jesus? And if I desire that, then James says, look, it's imperative. It's so important that you allow testing to produce patience and for patience to have its perfect work that you may be complete and lacking nothing. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, verse 5, let him ask of God. Do you need wisdom this morning? And that word wisdom there is not a word that we use a lot in our vocabulary. But he prefaces it by saying what? He says... If any of you lacks wisdom, he says, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. In other words, if you're without understanding, if you have a situation and you can't understand what's going on, you're having difficulty with it. He says, look, there's a simple solution. Ask God. Ask God. Now, we all use modern technology. We have smartphones, we have iPads, we have tablets. And uh, if we have internet access, I mean, at your fingertips, uh, you have just a world of information. You, you have computer systems and storage places that, that hold not billions, but multi-trillions of, of information. And you can Google it, you can Wikipedia, you can, I mean, instantaneously you have information. But all of that lacks something. And what it lacks is this. 
It lacks the divine wisdom. So I can go to God in simple prayer, laying aside my Bible, putting aside my electronic devices, and I can just get on my knees before a holy God, and I can begin to talk to Him, and He will speak into my life. Even as an unbeliever, even before I was saved, I grew up in the church. I sat in these chairs, in these pews, just like you are today, for years without any understanding of really what it meant to have a personal relationship with the Holy God. I was doing the church thing. Oftentimes, I went to church because I was told that I had to. And I would go and I would... I, I would come out of that service and I was just as empty going out as I came in. And there was a time in my life when it was easy for me to think, well, is there really a God? Does He really exist? Is You know, I, I hear, I've heard the Bible stories, I've heard the verses, I hear the songs being sung about God and about Jesus, but is there really a God? And you have to remember that was in a period of time in the 60s where we were questioning everyone and everything. If you were over 30 years of age, you were suspect. You were really old. And how could you know anything because you weren't hip, you weren't you weren't in, you didn't you, you didn't really understand what was going on in the world. And so it was a questioning generation. And I would walk out of those church services and not realizing that every time the Word of God was open and the Word was being preached, that God was dispensing wisdom. He was speaking truth. He was saying those things that were capable of transforming my life. It wasn't until I was 26 years old that I finally woke up. Raised in the church. Dad was a pastor. Millie came to the Lord. She had a relationship with the Lord. Was deeply growing in her faith. Was praying for me. And I was, hey, I'm a Christian because, well, I've always gone to church. And, and I was baptized. And I walked down an aisle. But no intimate relationship with God. No real understanding of what it means to tap into the wisdom of God. And that Sunday when I gave my life, totally and completely to Jesus Christ, the floodgates of God's wisdom begin to pour into my life. Because now, my not just my mind, but my heart was open to God. I was saying, there is a God, and He's real. And because of circumstances, what God was saying to me, John, there's not going to be many more opportunities for you. This is your time. I'm calling you today. I'm telling you, you turn from your sin, you repent, you come forward, you surrender your life to me, and I will forever, eternally change you. And like many people, I didn't want to be changed. I enjoyed who I was. But it was a life empty and devoid of an understanding of the love of God and the grace of God and the wisdom of God. And so James is hammering home his point. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. And that wisdom can begin, let me say this to you this morning, that wisdom can begin at the point of salvation. 
That's the first act of the wisdom of God being poured into someone's life. It's when you finally surrender, when you yield and you say, Jesus, yes. I'm saying yes to you, Jesus. I'm saying I want you in my life. I'm not going to deny you anymore. I'm not going to reject you anymore. I'm I'm not going to turn my back on you anymore. And when we do that, the wisdom of God begins to flood into our hearts. And I love what he says next. Who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. None of you ever thought you would see the word liberal in the Bible, but there it is. Liberally, literally, what what James is saying is he's not holding back anything. He's not saving you and then playing games with you. No, no, he's 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 coming into your life and he's saying now everything that I am, all that I have, all that I've given is yours to receive. And so we can just take it in to our lives. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's so powerful when you stop and think that God, an eternal God, a holy God, A God that has spoken everything into existence. A God who creates man from the dust of the ground, puts him in a deep sleep, takes one of his ribs out and creates woman. A God who gives us the ability to conceive and to bring forth life. A God who puts the stars in the heavens, sets the moon which affects our seasons, a sun that is just far enough away that we're not incinerated, though it feels like it sometimes. That God would say, I want you to be my child. I want to come into your life. I want you to know me. All that I am, all that I have to offer And so for James, he says, he wants to give with liberality and without reproach. But notice this. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Let him ask in faith. So there's that word again. There's that word faith. That word, that that little Greek word is pistos. And and it means to just put all your confidence and all your reliance in someone. We got on a plane on Monday. We flew up to Seattle. Millie doesn't like to fly all that much. And and so usually when we take off, she has a death grip on me on one of my arms. And 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 but, you know, that's an act of faith. When you get get in a plane, it's an act of faith. You believe that. That, that plane is going to get you to your destination, right? You're putting faith in the machinery, the mechanism. You're putting faith in those pilots to get you to your destination. When you walked in here this morning, you sat down in these chairs. You had faith that that chair was going to hold you. That's an act of faith. 
But that's a human perception of faith. Biblical faith goes far beyond that. Biblical faith says that I've put my hope and my faith and my trust and reliance specifically in someone. Not just in something. Not just a plane, not just a chair, not just pilots. No, I put my, I put my faith, all of my trust, all of my reliance is in someone singularly. And that someone is Jesus Christ. I believe and I trust and I hope and I desire that Christ would lead me, direct me, save me, give me purpose and meaning in my life. I don't know about any of you, but for me, before I got saved, the only purpose and meaning that I had in life was what I was creating for myself. After I got saved, my life changed dramatically. My heart's desire changed. The things that I was pursuing so adamantly in the world became insignificant to me. They weren't important to me. The most important thing to me was to get into the Word of God, to be in church, to be ministered to, to grow in my faith, to be, become part of a family, a spiritual family, a community of like-minded people that were there to encourage me, to build me up, to strengthen me, to disciple me, to invest in me, to pray for me. And as a result of that, I began to flourish. I began to grow. And, and my mindset changed. How I looked at people, how I viewed even temporal things, money, possessions, all of that began to change. Because what God was doing, it was bringing me into, and this is important for you to hear this morning, He brought me from a worldly faith into a faith relationship with Him. Into a believing, trusting honoring, obeying relationship with Him as the Son of God. Still capable of exercising my own will. We do it every day, don't we? I mean, all of us, probably some things this week that we did that were not honoring to God because we exercised our will. We decided, well, I'm going to do this and, and maybe even the Holy Spirit was convicting us and we just ignored that. Are you with me this morning? I mean, you hear what I'm saying? And yet God didn't discard you, right? He didn't cast you off and say, okay, that was your only chance. You had one chance, overdone. You know, you blew it. Your faith wasn't strong enough. No. What he does is he gives us that opportunity to come back. And with a confessing mouth and a repentant heart, what do we do? We say, God, forgive me. I know that was wrong. I'm asking for your forgiveness. Lord, help me to be strong not to do that again. And he's... So obedient to his word. And he says, yes, I'm faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. I'll do that. I mean, that was the purpose of the cross, right? That cross right there. That he could take all of our sin, all of our shame. And he said, just, I'll just take it to the cross. Past, present, and future. But he says, you can't be doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Anything from the Lord. 
simply stated is this. He uses the analogy of a ship on the sea. It's tossed by the wind. What does that say? What, what picture does that put into your mind? Well, it's this. That ship's never going to get to its destination. It's off course. That's what he's saying. You, faith in Jesus is to keep us on course. And, and he says, if you start doubting everything, well, I don't know, maybe there's not a God. You know, maybe Jesus was, wasn't really everything that he said he was. Oh, I don't know about the Bible. I read things in there and they're really hard. And, you know, I just don't know. Well, I'm just going to discard that. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I seem to be doing okay on my own. I, I don't think I really need God really telling me everything to do. I, I, I've gotten this far on my own. Sound familiar? We've all done it. Even as believers, we, there are times when we, and I like a term that Spurgeon uses, he said, whatever you do, don't relapse when it comes to your faith. You know, don't, don't fall back into the old way of thinking, the old way of doing things. And he says, if you're in that state, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. In other words, what happens is when faith is, is consumed with doubting and fear, what it does is it breaks the divine connection. You know, how is God going to speak to me if I'm doubting all the time? How am I going to hear from a holy God when I even doubt His existence? How am I going to hear from Him? Because what I've done is I've withdrawn from Him. There's a term that Jesus used when we do that consistently. He says, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're blaspheming the Spirit. What you're saying to the Holy Spirit is, I don't want to hear. I don't want to receive. I don't want to listen. How can you receive anything from the Lord? And he says he's a double-minded man and stable in all of his ways. Double-minded. A mind that obviously is still connected to the world and trying to stay connected to God. It's imperative that we have that mind in us that was in Christ Jesus, right? Amen? You all with me? Have, Have I put you to sleep this morning? I'm not trying to do that. He says, unstable in all of his ways. So obviously, faith in God creates stability for me. That's where I get stability in my life. It's when I walk in faith. He says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field will pass away. He says, for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass and it and its flower fails and its beauty, beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So what he does, and we'll wrap up with this, what he does here is this. In verses 9 through 11, he gives us a picture of two different individuals. He talks about the lowly man. The lowly brother. He says, glory in his exaltation. 
the lowly brother, the person who's just walking in simple and obedient faith, how is he going to be exalted? Well, God will exalt him. God will lift him up. God will raise him up in due time, in due season, for whatever purpose, whatever benefit that would glorify God and bring joy into that person's life. God says, I'll raise you up. I will exalt you. But then he contrasts that with the rich man. But the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. Riches, wealth, is no guarantee of joy and happiness in life. Someone sent me a little thing on Facebook and and I and I clicked on it and it's a young man that writes for a travel magazine. And uh he travels all over the world and what he found was he had all these frequent flyer miles and he found that Emirates Airlines he found a glitch in their in their booking system And he was able to use his frequent flyer miles and he was able to not just fly first class, but on, on Emirates, on their, their, uh, uh, new jets, their, uh, Airbus 380, they have these suites. And, and it's the most luxurious flying that there is in the whole world. You actually have your own little suite that you go into. Uh, in this plane, and when you get to the airport, you're not with the normal passengers. You're uh, you're expedited, being checked into the airport, and even when you board the plane, you go in on a in a different place than anyone else, and you're escorted by a guy in a suit and a tie with white gloves, and he takes you up and he takes you to your little executive suite, and and they have a shower on there, and they they serve all of the 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 uh, the most expensive liqueurs and champagne and so anyway he he gets this trip he goes and and he gets what's called a golden ticket and and he chronicles this whole story he t- gets on the plane he leaves and he flies first to Hawaii and he gets to Hawaii and he gets off the plane and he's off the plane. He has a, a day and a half and he, he stays in this luxury hotel. He comes back to the airport. They notify him when it's time for his flight. They pick him up. He goes and he gets on the flight. And then from there he flies to, to Sydney, Australia. And then from there he flies to to Dubai and then from there he flies to to France and and he's chronicling this whole thing and you and I'm looking at this whole thing and I'm thinking I deserve to fly like that how come I don't get to fly like that and he even talks about it. he has a picture and and he peeks behind these doors back into to coach and you see all the people like us how we fly and they're all, you know, they're just packed in there like sardines. And he takes a picture and he puts down below and he goes, golden ticket. And I was looking at that and he talked about the number of people that actually fly. This whole trip that he took, was six, just the airfare part was $60,000. Just for the airfare part of it. And I thought, man... And you get to the end of it, he, he goes through this whole, he gets to the end of it, and he said, oh, by the way, they fixed that glitch in their booking, 
That flight cost him $300 out of his own pocket. A $60,000 flight. He paid $300. And then down the bottom, he has a little tagline. He says, and oh, by the way, chances are this will never happen again in my lifetime. But so often, those in the world, this is what they're pursuing. I deserve better. I want more. I want, I want to accumulate more. And what he's saying is that becomes their humiliation. That is what will humiliate them before a holy God. Because they sought after the riches of the world rather than seeking after God. And going after God. He says, for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls. Its beauty, beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. You can pursue the things of the world. But when it comes to the end, it is the end. There's nothing eternal that is left other than simply the judgment of God. So faith, is it important, beloved? Is it, is it something to be embraced? Is it something to be praying for and to be longing for in our lives? Yes, it is. Because I know, I know personally, from personal experience in my own life, that while without faith in Jesus Christ, life is hopeless. It is. And it's easy for us in our minds to say, well, but I have my whole life ahead of me. No. That's a, de- a deception of the enemy. I don't know what tomorrow holds. When I got a phone call on a Sunday afternoon and my daughter, my 20-year-old daughter, was in Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach, and we arrived and we walked in and they took us into a room and there was her body laying on a stainless steel slab with the, her blood's life running out of her. 20 years old, been married three months. Guarantees? Guarantee that I, I have tomorrow or next week or next month or next year? And so I can dabble with my faith. I can pretend that I'm a Christian. I can go through life thinking that, oh, well, I don't really need to commit my life to Jesus Christ. No, no guarantees. No guarantees. And to have the comfort in my heart that day as I looked at my daughter's lifeless body, to have the guarantee and, and to know without reservation that just days before I had talked to her and asked her, Cassie, do you know Jesus? Do you love? Yes, Daddy, Jesus is in my heart. I know Him and I love Him. And to know and to have that guarantee, that's what causes me to say, I have faith in God. I can trust Him. I can believe in Him. I can know that He's going to be faithful. Not only to the end, but He will be faithful into eternity. So cherish your faith. Know how rich it is. And what a blessing it is to have faith in Jesus Christ. 
and cling to it, hold on to it as you cling to Him and you hold on to Him.